Our Lord and our God, we ask that as we hear your word expounded, we will hear it for what it is. God's word to God's people, revealing God's character and plan and will to us. We acknowledge, O Lord, that all scripture is given by inspiration and is profitable for us. And we pray that as we hear it, we would hear to believe its truths. And that in believing those truths, your Holy Spirit would use your truth in our hearts to transform us by your grace. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Tonight we continue our study of Paul's pastoral epistle to to Titus. Uh, So please have your Bible open at Titus chapter 1. Uh, We've already looked at the first nine verses uh, of this letter in two previous sermons, and so tonight we're really looking at the last seven verses of chapter 1, verses 10 to 16. We've already noted that Paul writes this letter to his young, uh, what we could say, his young trusted associate Titus, whom he'd left on, on the island of Crete to finish the work he'd started. He's done that because Paul wants Titus to minister to and build up a number of congregations that have grown up on that island because of gospel preaching that had gone on there. We also noted that the Cretans were renowned for their immorality and that Paul was concerned that that immorality shouldn't be reflected in the lives of the members of these local congregations. Rather, Paul Paul wanted the Cretans to live as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ and to be an influence and a positive effect on their culture rather than them being influenced and affected by the immorality that was around them. In fact, much of what Paul writes in this letter is really about that concern. And last Sunday, we... We looked at verses 5 to 9, and we noted there that Titus really begins this daunting task of putting the churches in Crete in order by appointing elders to shepherd these churches, to shepherd them really to godliness, to truth, and to love. And Paul goes on in those same verses to describe the qualifications, the character and something of the responsibility of elders because he wants these Cretan congregations to be disciplined by elders who have the right spiritual qualifications and who are therefore able to teach right doctrine and fight the false teaching that was in the church. He wanted that to take place so that these Cretan Christians could be distinctive, could be a distinctive and unique witness for Christ in their living and in the way they believed, a witness really to the surrounding immoral culture. And Paul knew that men who have the distinctive qualities and characteristics that he describes in in verses 5 to 9, they would be the right example 
not just for the Cretan church, but for us today, of how to live in an immoral culture. Because such elders are to live out what they preach and teach of the great truths of the gospel. They live out the great truths of scripture in both their personal and public life. That's what makes them godly examples to the church. It's as elders live a godly life and hold to the high standards that Paul sets out for them in this letter, that the church, by seeing what the elders do, by seeing that the elders actually practice what they preach, the church is then, or should then, respond more willingly to what they're being taught by their elders. And that enables the church really to be discipled in the way it should. It's by their godly behavior that elders are to foster godliness in a church. And so all that Paul says in verses 5 to 9 is all about promoting godliness and holiness and discipleship in the Cretan congregations. And that's really why Elders are appointed in churches. The pressing need really in in Paul and Titus' day was for Christian believers to resist the influence of of the surrounding immoral culture. And in order for for the Cretans to do do that, they they needed sound doctrine. They, They needed a sound doctrine that would lead them to godliness. And the reason for that is because sound doctrine is the foundation for godly conduct and living. It's when we receive and love and hold in high regard true apostolic doctrine that we learn to live in ways that are pleasing to God. And that's why this letter, as short as it is, is so useful and so helpful to any believer's edification. And throughout this letter, I think it's clear that Paul's concern is for the Cretan congregations to adorn the gospel of grace with their living, so that through their godly living, they show, they demonstrate, in a sense, the evidence, the power of God at work in them. A changed life is a result of a new birth. And the reason Paul calls for elders to be appointed in in all these churches is, is for the elders to help in this process, to help believers live in a way that pleases God. And as we saw last week in verse 9, a very important part or duty of an elder's work in a church is to oppose false teaching. And so this last part of Titus, verses 10 to 16, actually follows on very closely to what you see in verse 9. Having spelt out something of what is required in the life and, and character of an elder, Paul now goes on to talk about the false teachers and their followers who were really troubling the churches in Crete. We could say that 
Paul uses these last seven verses of chapter 1 to deal with the problem of false teachers in the church, which really was a large-scale problem for both Titus and other Christians on Crete. And I think it's fair to say that it is just a bigger problem in our day as it was then. What verses 10 to 16 also highlight for us is that in choosing the right elders, a church needs to know who shouldn't be an elder. A church needs to know who to avoid having as elders. And so Paul in this section really gives guidance on how elders are to identify and deal with false teachers and and false teaching. And he also explains why that must be done. And so tonight, there are four things I want us to see in, in this passage. Firstly, in verses 10 and 11, Paul calls for false teachers to be silenced. And then secondly, in verses 10, verses rather 12 to 14, he calls for false teachers to be rebuked with sound doctrine. And thirdly, in verse 15, he explains why true doctrine is to be defended. And then fourthly, in verse 16, he essentially says that our actions reveal the validity of our profession. So firstly, false teachers are to be silenced. That's what we see in verses 10 and 11. You see, elders are to make sure that the teaching that goes on in their local congregations is sound, that it's teaching according to God's word, that it's in accordance, really, we could say, with the preaching of Paul and the other apostles. You see, Paul doesn't tolerate teaching that deviates from the teaching and preaching of the apostles. And that's why he's telling Titus that the elders must. Notice the word there. It says must. It's something they have to do. It's a duty. Elders must silence false teaching in the church. And in verse 10, Paul gives us really three characteristics of false teachers. And he does that so that they can be more easily identified. And firstly, Paul calls them rebellious people. He calls them that because we could say they don't submit to the authority of God's word. Notice in verse 14, he says that they are teaching Jewish myths and the commandments of men. In other words, Paul calls these false teachers rebellious people because in in preaching a false doctrine, they are actually rebelling against the authority of God's word. God says in his, says his word is sufficient for us to grow in grace and is sufficient to equip us for every good work. But effectively, these false teachers are saying, no, God's word isn't enough. They are saying, in, a, in, a, in other words, if you really want to be a Christian and you really want to be holy and be what God wants you to be or God intends you to be, then you also need to believe these myths and you need to obey these commands, even though God hasn't specifically said that in his word. 
You see, false teachers essentially foster and encourage teachings and beliefs that are not explicitly mentioned in Scripture. Think about all the things that you see and hear on these so-called religious programs and late-night TV. You see, Paul's first description of the false elders is so that is that they are those who do not submit to the authority of the word of God. That's essentially what a false teacher is, someone who doesn't submit to the authority of God's word. And isn't that exactly what we see in our day? False teachers always come up with things that they say are necessary for Christian living and essentially sell those things as being keys to the Christian life, even though Scripture says, doesn't say anything of the sort. Secondly, he calls them uh, mere talkers, as the NIV uh, puts it. But I prefer the, what the ESV says. The ESV say, calls them mere empty talkers and deceivers. That phrase, empty talkers, in the ESV in Greek, is just one word, a, a word that means those who peddle big words that are, empty, that are as empty as a vapor or a mist. In other words, false teachers peddle their doctrine by, by talking big, we would say, by using big words that are essentially of little or no substance. Those words, their words rather, are empty because they are essentially teaching things that are not scriptural. And since they've effectively rejected the authority of God's words, they are really deceivers who peddle a false doctrine and a doctrine that is empty of all truth. And thirdly, he, he makes reference to this group that he calls the circumcision group. Paul is using that phrase, especially of the circumcision group, to indicate that a lot of these false teachers were mainly of a Jewish background. And that's why they're insisting that certain Jewish myths and, and man-made traditions are necessary for the Christian experience. I think there's a proviso there. We, we shouldn't think that all of the false teachers were, were Jewish Christians but it's likely that they were in the majority. So in verse 11, Paul says that false teachers must be silent. And why is that? It's because of the consequences of false teaching. You see, Paul is concerned that Christians in these congregations don't cave in to the peer pressure of the Cretan culture around them. And in doing so, live effectively like everyone else lives. If, if the Cretans don't believe what the Bible says is the way to grow in grace, they'll be hampered in the way in which they Christian life, in which they live rather the Christian life, because false teaching leads to false living. 
And it's the same lesson for us today. If we don't believe what the Bible says is the way to grow in grace, we too will never live the way God wants us to live. And when you examine the lives of false teachers, you'll see that they're not just false in their teaching, but false in their living. We've actually seen an example of this recently in the news about the late Nigerian pastor, T.B. Joshua. There are things that are coming out that are literally hair-raising about what went on in that church. And that's a warning to us that false teaching leads to false living. And that's why a key responsibility of church leaders is to stop and silence false teaching as soon as it arises in a church. Secondly, false teaching is to be rebuked by sound doctrine. We live in an age that thinks everybody's opinion matters and that it wouldn't help if different opinions were were expressed or taught in, in the church. And we need to remember that Paul's day, too, was pluralistic and that he didn't believe in different opinions being expressed in the church. We could say that Paul didn't believe in freedom of speech. Paul was really zealous for sound doctrine because sound doctrine is absolutely crucial and necessary for Christian growth. That's why Paul is concerned for these Christians to grow in grace. But they couldn't do that with bad teaching. And neither can we. And that's why Christians, if they are constantly subject to bad teaching, will never grow in grace. We all need sound teaching. And that's why elders must not only promote sound teaching in the church, but they must also fight false teaching and silence false teachers. That's really the context for what Paul says in verses 12 to 14, where he wants to encourage sound doctrine, a sound doctrine that leads ultimately to godliness. You see, Paul's description of the the Cretans in verse 12 is really what we could say uh, a reference to the general national character of Cretans. They were liars, they were gluttons, and so on. And from that, it's clear that their lifestyle is incompatible with a relationship with God. And that's why in in verses 12 to 14, Paul's words are so blunt. And I think Paul means them to be blunt. And that's why if you look at verse 13, he says, rebuke sharply. Paul is saying, in other words, that he wants these congregations in Crete to not only think and live as ordinary Christian. Sorry, I'll, I'll say that again. Paul is saying, in other words, that he wants the congregations in, in Crete to not think and to not live as ordinary Cretans do. But he wants them to be biblical in their thinking and in their living. 
And that's why Paul's telling Titus and, and, and the elders, essentially, that they must confront those Christians who are living according to their culture and to warn them against false teaching that will lead them not to God, but away from God. And that's why Paul wants elders to encourage sound doctrine that leads to godliness. Listen to what Paul says in verse 13. Therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. We could say that Paul's concerned that their thinking be right, so that their living will be right. And last week we noted in verses 6 to 8 the the character qualities of, of what elders should be. In fact, the character qualities you see in verses 6 to 8 are in sharp contrast to the character qualities of the Cretans you see in verse 12. You see, it's only men who are walking the walk, as we say, who can, with sharp and strong words, rebuke false teachers because they are men of integrity, because by their lifestyle, they can actually back up those sharp words of rebuke. Another reason verse 13 is so blunt is because not only is there false teaching in the church, but from what we read in verse 12, there seems to be what we would say a national predilection or partiality for false teaching. Paul wants these Cretans to stop following the normal cultural attitudes normal cultural outlooks, normal cultural behaviors of the people around them. And he wants them to turn from being like that because they are new creatures, a new creation in Christ. And because of that, they are actually new citizens of heaven. They need to understand that their new family is the Christian church. And I think we also need to understand the same principle. Although we may dearly love our family and friends, our first loyalty really is to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what discipleship, that's really a call to discipleship, that we need to understand that our first loyalty is not to our family, friends, or nation for that matter, but to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what discipleship is all about. And Paul wants Titus to challenge the Cretan churches so that their tendencies or their inclinations to embrace their cultural norms don't go unchecked. To put it another way, Paul wants elders in a church to challenge people against what they are inclined to do. You see, Paul's concern about false teaching is that if it doesn't go challenged, it will lead people to not really dealing with sin. Because if you're not challenged about your sin, you find yourself feeling that your sin has actually been dealt with because you come to church because you attend Bible study, because you read the Bible every day, because you pray every day, 
when in reality your sin has never been dealt with. Failing to challenge false teaching is what leads to ungodliness because false teaching can never produce true Christian holiness. That's another reason why Paul wants elders to encourage Christians to grow in holiness. And that's why all of us in church need to be challenged as to what we really think and what we really believe. And I speak as an elder now that if an elder knows his people and loves them, he should want them to live as Christians. And that means every elder in every church must be willing to confront and to challenge members in the church as to whether they really are the Christians they think they are and call them out to not live like the rest of their culture. Elders must challenge church members to live, in a sense, as believers in an immoral culture. And thirdly, elders are to defend sound doctrine. We defend sound doctrine by being what theologians describe as being dogmatic about the gospel. That is, we hold fast to the great truths of the Bible. You see, the the gospel is a sacred trust given to each one of us, particularly those in, in leadership positions in the church, so that when we preach or teach the gospel, we don't add anything to it and we don't take away anything from it. We preach only what's there. And when we do so, we must be absolutely clear about the truth of who the Lord Jesus Christ is and what he has done. We preach and teach only what's there. And as I've said, we know from verse 14 that the prevalent false teaching in Crete seems to be rooted in this Jewish background. And Paul's reference to the idea of purity in verse 15 implies that these false teachers were really emphasizing what was clean and what was unclean. And interestingly enough, the Pharisees in Jesus' day were concerned with the same thing. They were concerned with religious rites and ceremonies rather than with God himself. You see, ritual purity was seen as the way to God. And this, that probably led some of these Cretans to think that if they performed some of these rites or all of these rites and, and they followed all these commandments, that they'd somehow be clean. And because of that, they thought that somehow they were, in a sense, free to do what they pleased. This passage is, is, is really about purifying the heart. And its context is moral purity. You see, Paul knew that real purity of heart in God's sight has nothing to do with what we eat or drink or any rituals we may do or or even any good deeds that we may do. Remember what Isaiah 64 verse 6 says, Our deeds are as filthy rags in the sight of a holy God. You see, true, true purity 
is something only God can bestow on us. And he does that only through Jesus Christ. To be acceptable to God, we must receive God by faith. There's nothing we can do to cleanse ourselves. Because what cleanses us is what God did for us in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world by his sacrifice at Calvary. It's this totally sufficient work of Christ at the cross for sinners that when personally received by faith makes us clean. And this is why in verse 15 Paul equates those who are corrupted, that is, who are impure, with those who do not believe. Since only Christ can make us accepted in God's sight, nothing that those who do not believe can do, can ever make them pure in God's sight. It's to people like this that nothing is pure, as Paul says. This is why we must be dogmatic in our doctrine and dogmatic in living it out for the glory of God. Don't be, don't be too hung up on that word dogmatic. It simply means we must be faithful to Scripture because it is only faithfulness to Scripture that will enable us to live to the glory of God. And the opposite is, is legalism. Legalism, on the other hand, is, is about, not being do, do, about not being dogmatic and about not following Scripture or even following the law of God. See, salvation is only in Jesus. And since it's only in Jesus, we must preach only Christ because there's no other way. And since Jesus Christ is the only way, it's heresy, and I stress that word, it's heresy to preach anything else. False teaching damns people's souls, and that's why it must be refuted, because it's only Christ who can cleanse us in God's sight. Fourthly and lastly, belief and behavior must go together. You see, at a practical level, at a pure, pure living according to Jesus, is not about what goes into a person, but what comes out. It's not about keeping certain rules and regulations. It's, in a sense, about the motives of the heart. We read that in Mark 7, verses 17 to 23, by the way. So in verse 15, Paul mentions minds and consciences. And by that phrase, he's speaking about the heart. You see, since the fall, every part of human nature has been so affected by sin that even our consciences cannot recognize the difference between good and evil as we should. As a result, our, our corrupted consciences 
as a result of our corrupted consciences, we, we, we can't even discern the truth. And, be, and if we can't discern the truth, we can't live the right way. It's in our consciences, when it's working properly, that we're able to understand the will of God and do what is right. And it's when we do what's right that we get, in a sense, God's approval. But our consciences are so damaged that when we're doing things that are, that are detestable and, 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 in a sense, an affront to God, we actually think that we're doing the right thing. Our minds and consciences are so corrupt that effectively we deceive ourselves into thinking we're doing good when we're actually doing evil. If the mind is defiled, it can't inform the conscience. And so our consciences can't warn us. It's only when our conscience is accurately and properly and fully infused with God's truth that it can function as the warning system that God designed it to be. And this is why, if you look at verses 15 and 16, Paul says, in fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. Paul there is referring to the false teachers he actually referred to earlier in verse 14. And he's saying, to put it in other words, yes, they claim to have a special knowledge of God, but practically speaking, they deny him because they're living as if there is no God in the world. In other words, by their lifestyle and conduct, these false teachers show that their profession and their practice are actually in conflict. And what that means is that there's no, they don't actually have a real relationship with God. Why do I say that? Well, false teaching leads ultimately to the corruption of mind and conscience. And a corrupt mind and a corrupt conscience leads to corrupt living. A living that is all about self and not about God. That's why Paul has such a passionate hatred of false doctrine, not just in this letter, but in fact in everything that he writes. That's why at the end of verse 16, Paul says of the false teachers and their followers. And I think he could just as easily say the same thing about the false teachers we have in our day. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. That's really a testimony against all false teachers. Romans 12, verse 1 to 2, tell us that the mind can be renewed. Hebrews 9, verses 14, tell us the conscience can be cleansed only by the blood of Christ. And Titus chapter 3, verse 5, tell us the heart can be renewed, but only by the washing and renewal of the Holy Spirit. You see, man-made rules and rituals can never renew the inner man 
nor can they give us pure motives or even godly values. False teaching will never set us free from our inner bondage to self and sin. A religion without Christ can't set people free from their guilt, their doubts, or their fears. Only the gospel can do that. That's why Paul is so passionate about defending and preaching and teaching the truth of the gospel. You see, Paul's defense of the truth springs from a heart of love for people. Paul never, ever forgot the undeserved mercy he received from God. And that's why he wants all people everywhere to be set free from sin and self to serve God with a forgiven heart, a heart that rejoices in God's grace. And for us to, to, to rejoice that way, they must have the gospel and the gospel alone. You see, being dogmatic about biblical truth, about the biblical truth concerning the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, is the most loving attitude we can take. And I would go so far as to say that false teaching is to use a phrase that the Puritans used. False teaching is the murderer of souls. And this is why if we love people, if we love our neighbors, if we love our family, if we love our friends, we must confront and rebuke false teaching. To know what's going on in the heart of someone who says they're a Christian, you simply need to look at their life, look at their actions, look at what they love, how they spend their time, what they care about, what their priorities are. Look at their behavior. Because our actions reveal our hearts as they really are. Jesus said the same thing on many occasions using the phrase, by their fruits you will know them. And Paul here is reminding us we are to live the gospel especially when living in an immoral culture. We are to be salt and light wherever we are. In other words, our profession and our practice should never be in conflict. It's when they are in conflict that we fail to share the gospel with others in the sense that we make no impact on them because they see the conflict that we blind ourselves to. When you look at your life, do you see a manifestation of God's grace in you in the way you live? Do you see God's grace in the way you think, in the way you speak? If not, I suggest you may not be, it's because you're not saved. And if that's the case, I urge you to run to the cross. Jesus is the Lamb of God, and by his sacrifice at Calvary, he took away the sin 
of the world. And so God does save people like you and me. His grace is wide and free. So run to Jesus. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word tonight. Grant us the grace to have the desire to pursue holiness, to rely on your grace so that our lives may adorn the gospel of grace and that we may glorify you with our lives. We ask for your blessing upon our church that we be witnesses for you in our town. For those of us called to a position of church leadership, help us to live by your grace so that we may be examples to those around us, so that we may live up to the office, to the offices that we are called to. And grant us grace to use our lives for your glory. For all in the church, give us the boldness to stand up for you in a world that denies you as the way of salvation. And we ask that we continue to live in gratitude for what you have done for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.